currently live in the time where we are experiencing that things that used to be wrong are now right and things that were right are now wrong. And there's a lot of confusion about morality in our society. And in many people's lives, the Bible has lost its validity. It's just another opinion. It's just another idea. And for those who have gone that route, I hope they're right. Because if they're right and I'm wrong, I don't lose a lot. But if I'm right and they're wrong, they've got heaven to lose. Amen. And so today we exist in that world and at times our own minds get overwhelmed with what's right and what's wrong. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're crystal clear. Maybe you never have a temptation. Maybe you never have a weekday. Maybe you're right close to perfect. And if you are, I hope this is your last service here. Sometimes we struggle and we have to have an awakening. I have had to deal with, and for those of you that are not aware, I just buried my mother last week, uh, actually, I guess last Thursday, not this past Thursday, but the Thursday before. I came back to Lufkin on a Saturday, had a viewing, and actually uh, uh, done a funeral on Sunday afternoon last week. Before that, there's been several losses in our church, precious people that we miss so dearly, and then a, another funeral along the way in the midst of that. So my mind gets drawn back to what this is really about. In our society today, churches have become entertainment centers. They have to have the biggest and the best. They have to have a, the most progressive. They have to have everything popping and going and snapping. Or somebody moves on to the next one if they don't have the best children's program and if they don't have all the trinkets and toys and if the preacher doesn't entertain them just right, they'll just move. And that's what many times our church has evolved into. But I feel an awakening in our world because I believe that people are starting to recognize it's no time for a plastic Jesus. There's no time for thin religion. Something thick has got to get a hold of us. Something deep has got to get in our hearts if we are going to survive the assault of the enemy. I have been faced so strongly with the finality of eternity. I've never faced it. I've done probably... Uh, uh, 500 funerals at least in my ministry over the last 35, 40 years. But there was nothing like closing that coffin on my mother and looking at her for the last time to awaken me to understand the finality of eternity. There's something that we don't get in this life because if I'd have had a choice, every amount of money I had, I would have spent to bring her up out of that and get her right where we could have a conversation again. But there is something about the ultimate authority of God that when he says it is done, ladies and gentlemen, you will not march on Washington. You will not hold a free speech. You will not, you will 
not demand that he change the rules because God is God alone and there will be no changing of his word. We have a society even in the church that takes a very casual glance at his word and they write it off as well that's Old Testament stuff or that's New Testament stuff or that's their job or that's their, oh no honey, it's not about a church's doctrine. It's not about Old Testament or New Testament. It's about a God that says I change not. I am a holy God and I change not. Anybody, your mama ever tell you something and you whined and changed her opinion? Raise your hand. Bunch of weak mamas. <laughs> We're used to that, folks. During that time when my mom passed, I got stopped one time doing 92 and a 70, and I got stopped another time doing 85 and a 65. And I walked away with warning tickets both times. That's, I don't know what that is. By the way, I am not uh, placing my stamp of approval on breaking the law by speeding. Brother Neely would throw me off of this platform. I just tell him if I'd gone the speed limit all my life, I wouldn't even be here to be your pastor yet. But we are accustomed to whining and changing the rules. But ladies and gentlemen, there will come a day when we stand, we will, the Bible said all, everybody say all. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he will be the ultimate authority without an appeals court. Amen, and there will be many, the Bible said there will be many that come to him and say, Lord, we did this in your name and we did that in your name and we did this in your name and we did that in your name and he will say, depart from me, ye that worketh iniquity. I never knew you. And if that doesn't shake you, then nothing will ever shake you because as a preacher, as a man of God, I have to look at my life and I realize there's a whole lot of carnality left. There's a whole lot of less of the flesh left. There's a whole lot of the pride of life and I need Jesus to change me from the top of my head to the soles of my feet because I desperately, I desperately want to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of the Lord. And so my mind and my heart is heavy. I asked Brother Zeke to pray for me today. I, I don't want to drag you into my morning. I don't want to drag, I don't want to be out of place. I want to be crisp and clear for you today to share what God has given me for this day. Not long ago, very sadly, there was a group of people that had planned a great time. 34 of them, I know what it takes to get there. They had spent a lot of money. They had taken a lot of classes. They had spent a lot of time before they were given a a dive card 
where you can go scuba diving. You don't just walk into Walmart and say, hey, I wanna go scuba diving. You got a dive card. You work for that. You have to pass certain tests. You have to spend class time. And they were having a great time. And 34 of them were on the California coast. And you know the news story, that 75-foot commercial dive boat, the Conception, somehow during the middle of the night burst into flames off of Santa Cruz Island. And so early September the 2nd, that entire group of divers, 34 people, perished in a tragic fire down in the sleeping quarters of that boat. By the time the five crew members above on the deck noticed the fire, it was so intense that no one could get down and save those people. News states that all of the crew members were asleep. Federal investigators said Thursday confirming the lack of a night watchman whose job it is to look after the vessel through the night. I stand here today humbly and broken as your night watchman. I wonder what the condemnation would be to the policeman who had the car with the lights. He had the car with the siren and he set up the road a little ways from a bridge that was out and didn't turn the lights on and didn't call out to you as you came by and you ran headlong over the edge of that bridge and your family perished. How would we feel about that police officer? And yet many times when a man of God stands as a watchman on the wall and from the bottom of his soul says, ladies and gentlemen, the bridge is out, turn around. The bridge is out, turn around. Don't go that way. Many times that same preacher is called old-fashioned and out of date and he don't relate to me. Honey, I can't help it if I don't relate to you. If I can relate the book to you, I don't care if I'm relative or not. The writer... The writer of Jude, the writer of Jude wrote these words. He said, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. I believe we got them. I believe we got plenty of them. If you wanna know where to look for them, start with Hollywood. There's a bunch of them there. In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Holy Spirit. But you, beloved, he's talking to the church. He said, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves, keep yourselves. 
Keep yourselves. Don't make somebody else try to do that job for you. Keep yourselves in the love of God. I'm telling you, that's gotta make sense. If you went to the same kind of school I did, if you studied the same kind of English I did, that tells me there is a possibility of falling out of that love. If he says keep in it, stay in it, that means there is a risk of coming out of it. He said, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And then he hits us with amazing verse here. He said, and have mercy on those who doubt and save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And so I started a journey the other day and I was reading a book for my own comfort for the loss of my mom. And it's a beautiful book. I've in fact bought an extra copy or two and I would recommend it to any of you who are going through grief or loss. And you can jot this down if you want to, put it in your phone or you can ask me after church. A very beautiful book by Max Lucado or Lucado. I'm not sure how he wants it pronounced. He's not here today, so I don't think he'll care. But he, he is a beautiful writer. He's been a bestseller in the, in the Christian uh, reading and writing for many, many years. I don't even know what persuasion he is. At one time I heard that he was a Church of Christ missionary. I do not know. But Max Lucado writes some beautiful things and I was reading this book for my own sake when Christ comes and I read through some chapters about death and loss and all the things that, that help it to make sense and if you wanna know where they are and if you wanna know what the Bible says about where your loved one is and all that, it's a very, very good book. And I got to a chapter about halfway through called Love's Caution. Love's Caution. Did y'all have that on there, brother? I didn't put that for you. Love's Caution was the title of the chapter. And as I began to read it, I, I started to take notes and I thought, I'm gonna share this, some of this with the church. And then the more I read it, I said, you know, I think we're gonna have story hour in the morning. So Nick, if you would, for those who are sleepy and don't wanna get caught, would you go and turn these big, the bigger lights off, the, the fluorescents? And if you're sleepy, just don't snore. <laughs> just give me that. But for others, we're in kindergarten or first or second grade, and it's story hour. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 39 said, the flood came and destroyed them, and it will be the same when the Son of Man comes. He said, I did something differently recently. I actually listened to the airline attendant as she gave her warnings. Typically, my nose is buried in a book or a project, but a commercial plane had crashed just the day before, and so watching the newscast of that event convinced me to pay attention. And I realized that if this plane had trouble, I wouldn't know what to do. So I listened as she held up the seatbelt, I buckled mine. As she described the oxygen mask, I looked up to see where it was stored. When she pointed toward the exit doors, I turned to find them. And that's when I noticed what she noticed is every single flight, nobody was listening. No one was paying attention. I was shocked. 
I seriously considered standing up and shouting, you folks better listen up. One mishap, and this plane becomes a flaming mausoleum. What this woman is telling you might save your life. And I wondered what would happen if she got a little more dramatic. What if she took gasoline and drenched a dial and set it on fire? What if the in-flight screen projected images of passengers racing to exit a blazing plane? What if she marched up and down the aisle, yanking away newspapers and snatching up magazines and pulling people's phones out of their hands while they're texting on Sunday morning at church? Demanding that the passengers listen if they want to survive this flaming inferno. Well, first of all, she'd lose her job. But she, and she might go to jail these days, but she'd make her point and she'd also do the passengers a favor. And our Savior has done the same for us. He was motivated by more than duty, however. He was motivated by love, and here's the title again, Love Cautions the Ones They Love. Christ's caution is clear. He said, in those days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving their children to be married until the day, the very day that Noah entered the boat. They knew nothing about what was happening until the flood came and destroyed them. And the Bible goes on to say, it will be the same way when the Son of Man comes. People just doing their own thing. As we pointed out in the last chapter, you'll have to see it later, he said it's quite common that we are experiencing what happened in the days of Noah. People refused to listen then and many people are refusing to listen now. In the days of Noah, God sent a safe place for the faithful. It was an ark. And in our day, God has sent a safe place, and that is his church and the sacrifice he made. A flood came then, and a flood will come again, that flood being the vengeance of our God. The first flood was irreversible, and so will be the second flood. Once that door was shut on that ark, it was closed forever. There was screaming on the day of the flood and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth on the day of judgment. That's what the Bible said. And regarding those who are lost, the Bible said the smoke of their torment. Listen to this verse. He said those that are lost, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Revelation 14, 11. I am here to tell you what I spoke at my mother's funeral. Death and eternity are serious business. Hell is a serious topic. It's a topic that we would rather avoid. We, like C.S. Lewis, feel that There's no doctrine in the scripture that we would more readily remove than hell if we had it in our power. He said, I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully that everybody will be saved and there is no hell. But dare we say that? The question is asked, does hell serve a purpose? 
as much as we resist the idea, isn't the absence of hell even worse? Remove it from the Bible and at the same time you remove any notion of a just God and a trustworthy scripture. Because if there is no hell, then God is not just. If there is no punishment of sin, then heaven is apathetic toward the rapist and the pillager and the murderer of society. If there is no hell, God is blind toward the victims and has turned his back on those who pray for relief. If there is no wrath toward evil, then God is not love because love hates evil. To say there is no hell is also to say that God is a liar and his scripture untrue. The Bible repeatedly and stoutly affirms the dualistic outcome of history because some will be saved and some will be lost. The Bible said many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Paul agreed in his writing. He said to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give them eternal life. But for those who are factious and do not obey the truth but obey wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. He wrote that to the Romans. And so people object to this point by gravitating to the teachings of Jesus. Oh, I'm just gonna listen to the teachings of Jesus, they say. This idea of hell, they claim, is some Old Testament idea. But curiously, the Old Testament is comparatively silent on the topic of hell. It's the New Testament that is the primary storehouse of thoughts on hell. And Jesus himself is the primary teacher. No one spoke of eternal punishment more often or more clearly than Christ himself. You think about these facts, and I never knew them till I read this book. 13% of the teachings of Jesus Christ are about judgment and hell. 13% of all the things that he could say and all the things he knew and what he could expound on and 13% of his material was about judgment and hell. So you wanna know what Jesus talked about? More than half of his parables relate to God's eternal judgment of sinners of the 12 times that the word Gehenna, which is the strongest biblical word for hell, time that, that word appears in scripture, there's only one of them which Jesus is not the one speaking it. No one spoke of hell more often than Christ. He said anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who does not believe will be punished or damned or condemned. Are we to ignore these statements? Can we cut them out of our Bible so that we can remain relevant and popular? So that we can draw a crowd and not touch on the stuff that makes us uncomfortable? Even now, 
before Christ comes, the presence of hell serves a powerful purpose. The reason I got stopped at 90 is because I knew they might be there. If I thought they wasn't gonna be there, I'd have been doing 100. Hell functions with a powerful purpose like the police. Functions kind of like your dad's woodshed. Anybody know, this is for old folks here. Anybody daddy had a woodshed? Raise your hand. He said it functioned like my dad's workshop. That's where he disciplined me and my brother. When my mom was angry, we got spankings. When my dad was angry, we got whoopings. And you can guess which one we preferred. All daddy had to say was get to the workshop and my rear end would begin to tingle. I don't know how you feel about corporal punishment. I didn't mention the topic to discuss it. He said, I just mentioned it to explain the impact that the workshop had on my behavior. You see, my father loved me and I knew he loved me. And most of the time, his love was enough. And there were many bad things I didn't do because I knew he loved me. But there were a few times when love was not enough. The temptation was so strong or the rebellion in my heart was so fierce that the thought of his love did not slow me down. But the thought of that wood chop. So when love didn't compel me, fear corrected me. And the thought of the workshop weeping and gnashing of teeth therein was just enough to straighten me out. And the application must be obvious, but if not, let me make it so. Our heavenly Father loves his children. He really does love us. He really does. Most of the time, that love is enough to make us follow him, but there will be times when it won't. The lure of lust will be so mighty. The magnet of greed so strong. The promise of power so seductive. People will reject the love of God and it's in those moments that the Holy Spirit may talk to you about the woodshed, the workshop, and a place called hell. And he may remind us that whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And the reminder that there is a place of punishment may be just what we need to adjust our behavior. And Jesus provides such a reminder. What is hell like? Jesus is the only eyewitness of hell who has walked on this earth. And his description stands as the most reliable piece of of graphic material ever written. Every single word in this story is significant and every single word is sobering. The King James uses the words, there was a certain man 
but he was a rich man. It's in Luke. And, and he was always dressed in the finest clothes. He lived a life of luxury every day. And a very poor man named Lazarus, whose body was covered with sores, was laid at the rich man's gate every day, every day. He wanted to eat only the small pieces of food that fell from the rich man's table and the dogs would come and they would lick his sores. And the story begins at a very posh mansion in an exclusive neighborhood and the man who owns the mansion is extravagant. He wears the very, very finest of clothes. The Greek word suggested the fabric of his clothes were literally worth their weight in gold. And this man eats sumptuously every day and living in an era when most could only afford meat once a week, he was daily in his exotic diet of all types of meat. There were botanical gardens spread within his gates. Gold and china sparkle upon his table. Ripe fruit from groomed orchards are part of every meal. He lives, Jesus says, in luxury every day. But outside his gates sits a beggar and we know him by name. That's why we know this is not just a parable, folks. That's why we know this is a real story about real people. You study the Bible, it may not mean anything to you, but you study the Bible and you'll see that when he said there was a certain man, when he names their names, this was not something made up. Jesus was talking about real people that lived on this same earth you live on. Outside was Lazarus, his body's covered with sores, skin drapes from his bones, he's been laid at the gate. Someone too kind to ignore him, yet too powerless to help him. Loaded the man in a wagon and deposited him in front of the house of the rich man. In those days, the wealthy didn't use napkins after a meal. They would wipe their hands on chunks of bread and that's what Lazarus was asking for was just the crumbs of bread from the wealthy man's table. So heed this in contrast. A nameless barren, filthy rich, basking in leisure, a named, specific beggar lying in misery. And between them is a gate, a tall, spiked door. Inside there's a man feasting and outside there's a man starving. And from above a just God renders his verdict that is ultimate and complete. The curtain of death falls and both men die. And as the stage lights come up on scene two, we gasp at the reversal of their destiny. The Bible said later, Lazarus died and the angels carried him to the arms of Abraham. And the rich man died and was buried in the place of the dead. And the Bible said he was in much pain. The beggar who had nothing but God now has everything. And the rich man who had everything but God now has nothing. The beggar whose body probably had been cast into a garbage dump on the edge of town called Gehenna is now honored with a seat 
near Abraham while the rich man who was buried in the finest tomb and anointed with priceless myrrh is destined for the Gehenna of eternity. The pain of Lazarus has now ended and the pain of the rich man has only begun. And if the story stopped there, we would be stunned. But the story goes on. Jesus now escorts us to the edge of hell and reveals its horrors. The rich man is in relentless torment. Five verses make four references to his pain. In the place of the dead, he was in much pain. Verse 23, I am suffering in this fire. Verse 24, are you suffering? Verse 25, I, the rich man, have five brothers and Lazarus could warn them so they will not come to this place of pain. Perhaps the last phrase is the most telling. The rich man defines his new home as a place of pain. Every fiber of his being is tortured. And what's worse, oh yeah, it gets worse. He can see that place of comfort which he will never, ever know. So he lifts up his eyes and he sees the beggar who once lived at his gate and now the rich man is the one begging The rich man saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side and he called, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus just to dip his finger in water and touch my tongue because I am suffering in this place. You see, hell might be tolerable if its citizens were lobotomized Oh, their brains sucked out and they couldn't think or feel or know. But that's not the case. The citizens of hell are wide awake. They ask questions, they speak, they plead of all the horrors of hell. The the worst part must be the knowledge that the suffering didn't have to be and it will now never cease. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous unto eternal life. You know, the same adjective used to describe the length of heavenly life is used to describe the duration of punishment. It's the same word. It's eternal. Good people live forever and eternal joy and evil people are punished forever in eternal torment. I'm gonna just look you straight now and tell you I wish I could change this. I wish I could rip this out of the book. I wish I could tell you it don't exist. But I would be the policeman sitting on the side of the road with the lights and the sirens that refuse to tell you the bridge is out. I'd be the ship with 34 divers below perishing in a horrible fire for lack of a watchman doing his job. Revelation 14, 11 is equally disturbing. The smoke from their burning pain will rise forever and ever. 
There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his idol or who get the mark of his name. We'd love to believe that sinners will be given a second chance and that a few months or even a few millenniums of purgatory would purify their souls and ultimately they'd be saved. But as attractive as that sounds, scripture simply does not teach it. Abraham's response to the lost man's request affirms that the patience, listen to this statement this writer makes. Abraham's response to the lost man's request affirms the patience of God stops at the gate of hell. Oh God, please don't wear out his patience. He said, between us, Luke 16, he said, between us and you, there's a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you, they can't, nor can anyone cross over from where you are to where we are. The term fixed originates in the Greek word which means to set forth, to make fast. It literally means to cement, to permanently establish. And Paul uses the same word in Romans 16 when he boasts about Jesus who is able to establish you. It's the same word. It's fascinating that the same power which establishes the saved in the kingdom of God is also gonna seal the fate of those who reject the mercy and the love and the forgiveness and the grace and the word of God. There will be no missionary journeys to hell and there will be no holiday excursions to heaven. This is a hard teaching and it gives rise to a hard question. How could a loving God send people to hell? You've all heard that question. You've even asked it. I've asked it. But the question itself reveals a couple of misconceptions. First, God does not send people to hell. He simply honors their choice. Hell is the ultimate expression of God's high regard for the dignity of a man's choice. He's never forced us to choose him. C.S. Lewis stated, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Please hear the words of this writer. There are only two kinds of people in the end. The first kind are those who say to God, Lord, thy will be done. And the others are those who God looks at and says, Thy will be done. All that go to hell choose to do so. In another book by C.S. Lewis, he said it this way, I willingly believe the damned are in one sense successful rebels all the way to the end because the doors of hell are locked from the inside. No, God does not send people to hell, nor does he send people to hell. He doesn't send people to hell, and he doesn't send people to hell. 
That's the second misconception. The word people is neutral, implying innocence. Now, nowhere does scripture teach that innocent people are condemned. People do not go to hell. Sinners go to hell. The rebellious go to hell. The self-centered go to hell. So how could a loving God send people to hell? He doesn't. He simply honors the choice of sinners. Jesus' story concludes with a surprising twist. We hear the rich man as he pleads, send Lazarus to my father's house. I got five brothers and I would love for Lazarus to warn them so that they will not come to this place of pain. So what's this? The rich man suddenly possessed with evangelistic fervor, the one who never knew God now prays for missionaries. It's remarkable what one step into hell can do to your priorities. Those who know the horrors of hell will do whatever it takes to warn others not to come there. And Jesus, who understands the final flood of wrath, pleads with us to make any sacrifice to avoid it. He goes as far as to say in Matthew, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away because it's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than with two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. I'm gonna ask you a question right now. Did any of you spank your children and not want to do it? You're looking at it right now. I'd rather preach anything in the world to this good, sweet crowd on a Sunday morning. But I do not want to be the night watchman that refuses to say there's a fire on board. Please get to safety. The story that I've just shared with you is without a doubt the most disturbing story Jesus ever told. It's packed with words such as torment, pain, suffering. It teaches concepts that are tough for us to swallow, concepts such as conscious punishment and permanent banishment. But it also teaches a vital truth which is so easily overlooked. This story actually teaches the unimaginable love of God. What? What are you talking about, preacher? What are you talking about the love of God when you're reading that kind of story? I read a different story, obviously, preacher. The one I read is about hell and punishment and eternal misery. How does that teach the love of God? Simply to answer, because God went there for you. God spanned that chasm. God crossed that fixed gulf. Why? So you would not have to go there. Never forget that while on the cross, the Bible said Jesus became sin. In all of its filth, in all of its impurity, in all of its nasty and vulgarity, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, became sin 
for us. Christ had no sin, but God made him to, to become sin so that in Christ we could become right with God. Jesus became sin, the very object which God hated, the very object that God punishes. And the Bible so clearly states, the wages of sin is death. And Paul stated in Romans 6, the rich man in his, his, in his testimony to this verse, lead a life of sin and earn the eternity of suffering because God must punish sin. Even when the sin is laid on his own son, and that's exactly what occurred on the cross. The Bible in Isaiah 53 said, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. And because he did, Jesus took our suffering on himself and he felt our pain. And what the rich man felt in hell, Jesus felt. And what you saw as you stared into the pit of hell, Jesus experienced. And the pain and the anguish, the isolation and the loneliness no wonder he cried out in Gethsemane and he clawed the ground and he sweat as it were great drops of blood and he cried out, my God, not my will, but thy will be done. And no wonder he cried from the cross, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Like the rich man, Jesus knew hell. But unlike the rich man, Jesus didn't have to stay there. Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. And that is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Yes, hell's misery is deep, but it is not as deep as the love of God today. There is a hope in this house. There is a help in this house. I don't care what you're struggling with or how long you've been struggling with it. I don't care how deceived you are or what you've tried to deal with. I'm telling you there's a God that loves you enough to reach you this morning because he knows the horrors of hell and he does not want anyone to go there. So how do we apply this message? If you're saved, it should cause you to rejoice. You've been rescued. A glance into hell should leave a believer to rejoice. That's why we were worshiping around here this morning with some of these songs. We've seen an option and we've decided to take the option. We've seen an opportunity to escape the darkness and we've decided we're gonna take the opportunity. The road may not always be easy. It may be uphill sometimes. We may have our struggles and we may have our failures, but we're gonna walk with God no matter what. Hallelujah. But it also leads the believer to redouble his efforts to reach the lost. Some of you after this morning's message, if you're not already getting up 30 minutes an hour early, I'm begging you to start after this week because somebody 
could be saved from that eternal darkness simply because you chose to get up and seek God for their soul. To understand hell is to pray more earnestly and to serve more diligently because ours is a very high stakes mission. It's life and death. But to the lost, what's the meaning of this little message? Heed the warning and please get ready. This plane won't fly forever. Death is the destiny of every man and the living should take heart. You should realize today you're not always gonna be what you are. One of these days, you will be what your choice has made you and it will last forever. Isaiah 5 and 14 declares that there are so many making that choice that hell hath enlarged herself. But John 3.16 screams back, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But he warns us strongly in Luke, Jesus says, I tell you, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And I quoted it at the funeral the other day that I spoke at. Unless you are born again of the water and of the spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said. Psalmist said, for the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Matthew 18, 11 said, the son of man is come to save that which was lost. How think ye if a man have an hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it's not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. I hope today that I have not spoken from the heaviness of my own dealings with immortality and eternity of light. I do know that we live in a society that wants to ignore this. <laughs> My wife and I was laughing about it, a few, I guess just yesterday, last night at dinner. While we were in Bible school, we worked for a little while. I think she said we lasted three months or three weeks. <laughs> we sold cemetery plots for the big Forest Park Cemetery in Houston. You wouldn't believe some of the responses you get when you call, catch somebody at their supper and say, hi, this is John Boone, I'm with Forest Park. I forget the spiel, but we wanna sell you a place to bury your nasty hide when you're dead. Actually, we never said those words like that, but I guess that's what they heard, because I've been cussed out. And I was just trying to do them a favor. 
the other day as we dealt with the funeral director, she said, John, she said, I know you didn't get to be here with the rest of your family when they made some of these decisions. She said, I just wanted you to know there's a plot by your mother and we'll save it. It'll be reserved for one month if your dad wants to exercise his right to buy that and be buried by your mother. I don't know if we're going to need that or not. <laughs> You're going to need one. You might as well get to buying it. And if you don't use it, what have you lost? You have the choice. My mother, someday I'll share it with you in a message. She wrote out what she wanted at her service and how she wanted to be dressed. But the one thing she said that so clearly stuck in my mind, and I used it in her service, is she said, you preach your own funeral every day by the way you live your life. You're making your choice right now. Right now, as I preach to you with all of my heart, if there's things God's talking to you about right now, right now, if God's talking to you about something, you're making a choice. You're either going to gamble for more time or you're going to completely ignore him or you're going to find yourself a place to pray and you're going to say, God, not my will, thy will be done. And those who never get to that place where they say thy will be done will be those who God, when he casts them into eternity, says thy will has been done. Many times you've heard the story while sitting on your mother's knee You heard about how much he loved you About a place called Calvary 